From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. A very special episode of the pod today. Joining us on campus is the prolific TV creator, showrunner, Michael Rausch. We're holding the conversation in front of a live studio audience on York Street here in New Haven. Looks like it's going to be a packed house, which is cool. Lots to talk to Michael about. You might remember Michael as a guest in our show last year. He is our first ever return guest. Very excited to have him back now that his CBS series, Instinct, starring Alan Cumming and Whoopi Goldberg, among others, was picked up for a second season. It's incredibly generous of Michael to take the time to come up here while he's in production. I probably said this the last time he was on, but Michael is one of the kindest, most earnest, and just all-around good guys I know in this business, which is part of why he's so incredibly successful, along with his enormous talent. In addition to Instinct, Michael has written, created, executive produced, showrun, and directed lots of TV and film, including eight seasons of Royal Pains on USA alongside Andrew Lanchewski. A huge thanks to Derek Webster and the Office of Career Strategy for hosting this event. And as always, a giant thanks to our great producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy, who's in the field taping the event in addition to everything else he does for the show. All right, we're going to take you now to the Center for Collaborative Arts and Media on the corner of York and Chapel Streets for our in-depth convo with Michael Rausch. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. Wednesday morning, we're going to start a new, prepping a new episode. The very first thing we're going to do is called a script walkthrough. So the, the department heads of every department of the show, the writer of the episode, uh, and, and uh, the director of the episode, and me, we will all be sitting around a table, and we will go page by page through that script. And we'll just talk about the big picture things. And from there, they will go off and start scouting locations. And that's the way prep begins. We'll have a conversation with our casting agent just to go through the roles we have to cast for that episode about what we're thinking of, um, age, gender, uh, you know, who, what the background is. And then I will probably not see that director again until the production meeting, which is usually two days before uh, we start shooting. So today we had a production meeting for the episode that actually starts tomorrow. And then following the production meeting, we have what's called a tone meeting. And that's the time where a director can ask any question they have about any part of a script. Why is this actor saying this? What did that character do? Um, and it's also for us, for the writer, for me, to be able to go over specific moments and say, um, you know, this is not just a simple moment. This is a very important moment because, or although this, this line sounds like it's serious, it's meant to be funny. Um, and then I will go through the way the set works and the way, you know, here's what we do, Here's how you have to act. Here's how you have to treat the actors. Here, here's what the actors are like. And it's kind of the imparting wisdom. So hopefully they will be able to do it all. But it's the final warning in case for some reason they're not doing it that I'm able to say this shouldn't be a surprise. We talked about this a few times. And that rarely happens. I mean, the majority of the directors are great. And they just 
want to do a great job and, and shoot a great episode. And so you're heading, you're, you're now, you know, deep into the second season here. You, I think you said you're um, on episode eight. Of we the start season. episode eight uh, tomorrow. Right. Yes. Michael had a, a 6 a.m. call time this morning, um, which is especially generous of him to come uh, to New Haven tonight. Free pizza. <laughs> right. Um, but um, do you feel like now everything is a well-oiled machine, or is it just as hard to start up each episode every Monday morning is just as difficult as it was first season? It is definitely not just as hard, but the problems just change. The first seasons of shows, of TV shows, are the worst. Um, and they're bears, and, uh, and I say that I still love every day of every week of every episode that we do, and I always have, and it's the best job. So, um, but, but you have pressures and uncertainties and uh, slowdowns that you don't have in other seasons because what's happening simultaneously is you're figuring out the show. Because you make a pilot, and a pilot's like a movie. It's, it lives on its own, and that is the sales tool that will either get you on the air or won't. Um, when you get picked up, all of a sudden, you're figuring out what stories you want to tell and which characters are working and the relationships. And you're figuring out while you're spending millions of dollars <laughs> making the episodes. And at the same time, the network is figuring out the show that they want. And so oftentimes, uh, they don't always line up in the same way. Or sometimes the network is seeing, you know, we're a mid-season show, which means we air in March. So they're seeing what's working now in the fall, and they may want to try to do a course correction um, if something is, is failing in a big way or, or is succeeding in a big way or something happens in, in real time that changes it. Like we had a giant course correction last year um, because there was a leadership change at the network, and the people who came in were not the people who originally bought the show and put it on the air. So they had a different way that they wanted to have the stories told. And it actually was a way that I liked. But those things can happen once you get through the first season. Those giant things, for the most part, go away. So before, before we got picked up for a second season, um, we went in to the heads of CBS and pitched my ideas for what I wanted the second season to be. And um, it, it was part of what decided if we got picked up or not, which was important. But what was also great is once we got picked up, I already had approval of the stories that I wanted to tell, and they already knew them. So there wasn't the mystery of it while it was happening and getting phone calls. And so it just made so much of that first season stuff disappear. Do you find that as a viewer, second seasons, third seasons being better than first seasons, for lack of a better word, because the vision of the showrunner is now able to sort of come to fruition? I, I used to find that way almost always. And... In a lot of shows that I've watched on, on Amazon or, um, or Netflix, they feel like they're shows that were meant to be one season. Right. And they were done so well that someone said, why don't we make another season? Right. And if it were me, I'd say, great. But the, what was so brilliant about the show told its story and it kind of wore itself out in season one. So the season twos often feel like they're good, but they're not capturing the specialness and the magic that season one had. Right, which is a shame because it's, as you say, it's not until the second season that the showrunner, the writers really are able to right. you know, get their vision across. But I also think it's a different thing. I mean, you know, a, a lot of what network TV is, is, is its own thing now, and it used to be the only thing, and now it's kind of, um, in a weird way, the, the lesser respected, um, which is neither good nor bad, it is what it is, but what is 
unsaid usually is that network TV has a very short time frame to shoot episodes and a much lower budget to make them. And usually we're writing while we're shooting. So a lot of these other shows have all of their episodes written before they start shooting. And you know, networks like HBO, you can have a lot more time and a lot more money. So um, I, I think that almost in a way, uh, aside from the fact that it's a procedural, it can sustain itself longer. You know, we're so rushed to develop stories that, that our stories sometimes uh, have more longevity right. than some of the ones on, on shows. But I'm, so I'm curious about that. So on a cable show like you, um, you ran Royal Pains for many years, you were, you know, oftentimes, you tell me if I'm wrong, but shoot the entire season and then begin airing them. Certainly yes. how a lot of cable shows work. The benefit maybe of what you do now in Instinct is you can interact with the audience. Right? You are still in the middle of your order when you're getting reviews, when you're getting feedback from viewers. Do you ever change an episode or change anything based on those factors? We are not, actually, because we're mid-season, so we're done. But um, usually I don't read anything online about anything I ever do because it's never good. Um, and it's, all, it's, it's just not that it's never good. It's just people feel, the, you know, it's a cliche now, the freedom to be incredibly destructive. Um, and more so to actors than to, but, you know, I mean, something happened to one of our actors this year, and all I wanted to do was respond, and I knew the worst thing I could do was go on Twitter and respond. But, um, but on Royal Pains, we had, um, after season one, and season one was, ratings-wise, like a tremendous success, a surprise to everyone. And uh, what happens is networks, when a season ends, they put together um, a giant, it's like a, Bible, basically, and it has every piece of information that, that they want to know about every moment of the entire season. So how people liked the wardrobe that this woman wore in this episode, or how people liked this scene here, they just know everything. And I usually say I don't want to see it, but there was one thing that was glaringly unanimous, which was everyone hated a character, and it was a very important character. And men, women, old, young, like, you name it, no one liked this guy. And so it was very important to, to kind of get smacked in the face with that because what we did is we spent the first week or two in the writer's room in season two just working on dimensionalizing that character, making him a real person. Clearly, we hadn't done our job in season one, and it wasn't the actor's fault, it was our fault, and, and we and we were able to do it in a very successful way. So when things like that happen where it feels like, you know, no one is enjoying what you're doing, then to me, it's worth taking a look at. And that giant book they're putting together of how people react to all the details of your show, they're doing that for you, right? I mean, they want... I think they're they doing it for themselves more than for us. Um, they're cool it, with It's a research saying, report. Nah. I, I just don't, you know, I mean, it's not going to dictate the stories that we want to tell, and it's not going to dictate the characters that we want to develop, unless it's something that feels like um, clearly it's not working, and why spend time turning an audience off? You know, there's so many options now for you guys to watch TV that, that sometimes I will give, it's horrible, but, but if I'll watch an episode of something and I find nothing in it that is appealing to me, even if I hear it's a great show, I'm not going to watch another one because there's 10 other shows that I've been told to watch, and so I'll just try a different one. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a very slim margin of error now because there's so many choices for viewers. So it used to be when there were four, you know, Showtime and HBO on the networks, you could have the time to have a couple of 
episodes that were not so good because your audience is so loyal. And now there's always a fear that someone's just going right. to stop watching. So your current show, Instinct, is based on a James Patterson book. Um, what's the stat about James Patterson? Oh, I don't know sales? what you're talking about, Aaron. <laughs> um, apparently, according to Aaron, one out of every 17 books that sells in the world is written by James Patterson. One out of every 17? Yes. More, so, more than the Bible. Um, so you, I mean, he's got a giant, giant readership who more or less expects something every time they pick up a James Patterson novel. Yes. What sort of responsibility do you feel to the audience to make this feel like a James Patterson joint? I felt a very strong responsibility in the pilot um, because they were using his name to sell the show. And he, he's a very nice guy and clearly incredibly accomplished and successful at what he does. And so I didn't want to take that and completely corrupt it with hackiness. Um, but at this point now, the show is the show. So, you know, and, and there were characters that, that came out of his book, so he's clearly still a part of it. But, you know, the people are going to watch the show based on the stories we're telling, right. um, not based on whether it's going to be Patterson-esque or not. Does Patterson give you feedback on the show? He reads every single document. He does not. It's incredible. Every single document. I'm so impressed with him. And usually before anyone else. Um, like, and I'm, I'm outlined, story areas, every single thing. Yeah. I know, it's remarkable. Are you being serious? Right I'm now? not kidding. I think it's, you're kidding. It, I promise you I'm not kidding. He reads the story area, the outline, and yes. the scripts while he's writing, I think he publishes 10 books a year or something. Yeah, yeah and, and the kids' books, and they Literally. make movies of them, and he's got to count the gazillion dollars he has. Right. He's doing a um, podcast with me right He's doing now. a podcast yes. with you right now, yes. Um, uh, that was amazing. Yeah, no, it's really, really impressive. And does he give heavy-handed notes? No, he gives... Notes, and he doesn't give them twice. He's completely respectful if they're not taken. And usually when they're, you know... I mean, it took a little while, I think, for him to adjust to the fact that this show was not going to be like a James Patterson novel, just because it, it's its own thing. Um, but nothing disrespectful or rude or just always trying to weigh in and have ideas um, and, and make it better. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Okay, in class we've been talking a lot about whether TV writers sort of as a whole still think in episodes or whether they think in seasons now. Um, some creators, like, I don't know if you guys have watched The Haunting of Hill House yet, which just came out on Netflix, but the creator of that said something which you hear a lot these days, which is, I was writing a 10-hour movie. And you see that with TV all the time now. Um, so I'm curious about you, you know, writing for CBS maybe was different than when you were writing for USA or ABC Family. Do you still see the episode as sort of the base unit, or do you really think it's season now? Both simultaneously. I mean, the episode, on CBS, every episode has to be close-ended. Um, and one of the reasons why is because it's much easier to sell shows like that internationally because they can run out of order. Um, you know, if you're not... While there are relationships that sustain from episode to episode, if it's a crime show and someone gets killed and they figured out who did it, that can run any time. Um, so in that sense, every episode has to be its own thing. Um, but at the same time, you know, when we start the writer's room each year, we have our kind of overarching stories for each character and our big story that we want to tell throughout the season. We have a serial killer in this season um, that allowed us to introduce a new uh, detective. And so you're keeping track of that. And then every three or four weeks, you know, on a Monday at 10 a.m., you'll stop for an hour and just visit the board of the season-long stories and see, 
do we need to change anything? Have we forgotten anything? Do we need to plan something now? Right. Um, yeah. As a as a fan of TV and as someone who grew up watching, you know, you and I talked about like Magnum PI before you were a fan of when you were younger. Do you um, do you miss the sort of the the sanctity of the episode, you know, now that people are really thinking of episodes as chapters, or are you into this new idea of 10-hour seasons? I, to me, I, if, if the show, if the episode of the show is funny and captivating and, and draws me in, I couldn't care less if it's one unit or if it's a part of a much bigger piece. And that's, you know, whether it's The Crown or Mindhunter or, um, you know, and, and really anything that that is good to me, I want to watch it. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to open it up uh, to the audience in a second, but first, something we do um, on the podcast is we ask the guests to pick a scene from someone else's work that they're a giant fan of, and then we just watch that scene and discuss it from a craft perspective. Um, so Michael picked a scene from The Verdict. Who here has seen The Verdict? Paul Newman, wow, guys. Two people. So it stars Paul Newman. It's written by David Mamet. You guys know David Mamet, right? The playwright um, and screenwriter. This is toward the end, um, sort of Paul Newman making his summation. He plays a lawyer who is an alcoholic and down on his luck and has just taken on sort of the case of his life. And this is his closing statement. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book. Not the lawyers. Not a, a marble statue or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer. A fervent and a frightened prayer. In my religion, I say act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. One of, I shouldn't say the great, one of my favorite shots in film history um, comes in the next scene and the crane shot in this scene is a setup for a crane shot in the next scene. So um, you guys don't even know that that beautiful whole thing that you just saw that is its own unit, in the director's mind, also was something that he then knew he was going to re be repeating in a following scene, but in a very different way. 
and in a way that only film or only TV uh, can capture in terms of, of an energy of a moment and, and the way a camera can inject emotion and wake you up uh, in, in such a beautiful and powerful way. And so that's one of the reasons why I love yeah. that scene. And just in terms of the language, I mean, Paul Newman, you know, he's obviously arguing on behalf of his client, but he's really arguing for himself in that moment. I mean, he's talking about asking for faith from his fellow man, asking for justice, and that's what he needs from, you know, in his own life. He's been, you know, sort of really battered, and he needs people to give him another shot here. And so it becomes so much more emotional than just an advocate arguing for their client. It becomes about a guy who is fighting for his life. That's what I felt. And that's what, for those of you who were in the class before when we were talking about, and I was saying what a pain in the ass I am about theme, that's why. Because in that one monologue, he was able to accomplish Mamet the two stories, the A story, the legal story, and the character story, the B story. And they became one story. And it has that extra power to it because it has another layer to it. It's not just, you know, find these people guilty or find this person innocent. It's, it's doing that while also pleading for his own, for his own life, in a way. And so, it, the, to me, the best stories, when they're able to kind of coalesce under one theme, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they just have that much more power. And, you know, we've talked about this a little bit in my class, but, you know, the reason so many shows are set in the legal world is because, you know, the stakes are very clear, the intents and obstacles are very, very clear. Um, simply... Uh, a lawyer standing up and making an argument creates conflict. You know, there's conflict between the defense and the prosecution, of course. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm thinking of the shows you've worked on. Have you ever gotten to write a courtroom scene? I have never. And, in fact, there may be one in the finale of After this season, years, but probably it. not because I don't, <laughs> I, I don't think we'll have room for it. But, yes. Wow. But that's very intimidating. Yeah. When I wrote yeah. briefly on, on Law & Order SVU, I mean, it was absolutely the most fun to have your lawyer talk to the jury and, and make his case. And, you know, there's sort of no clearer um, diffusion of drama, you know, than someone advocating on someone else's behalf with life or death stakes, and it's either going to, you know, come out in their favor or not. I mean, that's sort of the essence of drama. I, I'm just going to repeat myself. You guys should watch this movie. Um, it is just, I'm just thinking about how, I'm thinking about Kavanaugh, and I know he's a graduate from here, so I'm not going to, I'm not saying anything bad, but um, that, how that whole story is so connected to what this movie is about, um, and, uh, and, I just, and it's one of the best movies ever. Yeah. And if you guys don't know Paul Newman, watch Butch Cassidy, The Sundance Kid also, um, one of the great movies ever. William Goldman wrote it. Um, it's Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Uh, great love story between these two guys. Um, funny and moving and spectacular. Um, what questions do you guys have for Mike? I have a million more questions, but want to give you guys a chance here. And I just want to repeat the question. Um, uh, he's asking about your techniques for creating character, especially on Real Pains, making them more likable or not. So this character was the brother, um, and, uh, and he was, in season one, a womanizing, money-hungry, um, you know, talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk guy. Very funny. And the actor is very funny. And sometimes what happens is you get... Lazy is the wrong word, but if something feels like it's working, you just keep doing it. And then only in retrospect you realize we're repeating ourselves or in this case, this guy does not feel like a 
fully fleshed out human being. He feels like a caricature of a human being. That would work much better in a multicam sitcom where it's like joke, joke, joke. You know, you're just repeating the same jokes over and over again, but they're funny, so you watch it, as opposed to trying to get people invested in relationships and, and uh, for an hour, not a half hour. And so, you know, we talked about who this guy was and why he was that way and what his greatest fears were and what would be the biggest surprise that could happen to him. And what ended up happening, and it wasn't even our intention, is that he became, his story became the great love story of the series. And here we had this hero who was a single Jewish doctor, which that alone is like you're, you know, a bachelor to half of Manhattan, um, and really handsome and, and lovable and warm, and he's a doctor you want, and he's the one who didn't have the great love story. And so, you know, a lot of that was because I think we did such a thorough job of, of dimensionalizing him, and then we also got very lucky because we cast a woman for two episodes to be a kind of fake date for him, and their chemistry was so spectacular, and she is so talented that she ended up being in every episode, like the next 94 episodes she was in, because she was so great and they were so great together. So some of it was the work we did and some of it was luck of, you know, when you see that, and that's what I was saying before, sometimes you plan things and sometimes you have to have everything planned and you have to be completely ready to scrap it if something better comes along and just follow that. So, you know, you can't be stubborn, you can't stick to things just because you said you're going to do it. You follow what works. And, and she came into the show and she brought the best out of him and it just gave us a whole other place to write to because one of the things that happens in these shows is as you get older, you add characters because you need more storytelling. You need more places to go. You can't change characters that much, but you can't add too many. So you have to be very careful about who becomes part of the ensemble. And this woman, Brooke Dorsey, who played Paige, um, was just a home run for us. Did you spend any time when you first got the note um, about the character being so unlikable about cutting him? No. No, he was... He was such an important part of the premise of the show and the theme of family that you know Andrew introduced and that, and that was really the heart of the show that there was no way I mean the show probably could exist without that character because he wasn't driving the A story but I don't think it would have been as fun to write or as fun to watch without him Other questions? Yeah and just to repeat the question, so there was an actor asking about the audition process and the difference between potentially auditioning for TV versus theater. Um, it would have been great if you'd said a completely different question. <laughs> um, uh, would that have thrown you or you could have come No, out? I'm thinking about take the money and, or bananas. Anyway, um, so the first question, what I can say to you not knowing your talent level or is, and it's what I'd say to writers and directors too, is the things that you can control are how hard you work, how much you care, your attitude, and being on time. And, and no matter how much time you have to practice your craft or how little time because you're paying student loans and you're waiting tables and you've got six kids at home, you know, that's all, everyone has different things you have to manage. And so, and some people are born with a ton of talent and some people, and they waste it and some with a little talent, they figure out a way to nurture it. Um, but those are things that are out of our control. But the things that, that we can control are, are the things I mentioned. And it sounds so obvious, but you're, there are going to be showrunners in TV that are more talented than me and less talented than me. They get paid more and paid less. And I, don't, I can't care about them, and I can't care about that. All I can care about is my work and how hard I do it. And, and then when I get in a room 
be prepared for it. So if you get in a room and you're auditioning and you're there on time and you know your lines and you know the scene and, and you're able to deliver and sometimes it's really nerve-wracking and you know, some directors and some casting agents will be warm and say, you know what, take a moment, do it again, and some will be, sorry, you know, that's the business, next time. Um, and not letting that damage your confidence and not letting that damage how you feel about your work and how you feel about your profession because that's going to happen. You're going to come across people who are rude, who don't get you, who tell you you're not talented. And, and it's such a business where there's more often than not failure than success that you have to figure out how to carve a path to keep working and keep believing even though the world seems to be sending you signals that, oh, it's really hard, it's really hard, it's really hard. So um, there's no, you know, in terms of what you can do, for Brooke, she, we'd actually tried to get her for an episode um, at the beginning of that season, and her agent said, uh, it's an offer only, which means they won't audition. And, and I loved her work, I'd never met her, and I, I said no, this is a premiere of this season, and it's a big part, and it's, it's a girlfriend of our lead, if she doesn't want to audition for it, then we're not going to get the part. So she didn't audition for it, and we didn't get her the part. And then six episodes later, this part came about, and it was so right for her. Um, and and so the I, the point is is that you know you don't know how things are going to happen. If she had taken that first part, if that she had auditioned, or if we just said, all right, take it, then Paige may never have happened, and that love story may never have happened. Um, so the woman who read for that got that first part wouldn't have had a job. You know, it's, there's no way to control that stuff, is my point. And you can't worry about it, because you're never going to be able to control it, unless it's your show. Um, in terms of the second part, to me, if an actor comes in, and he or she is connected to the material, and it feels real, and they're present, that's all I care about. If they, you know, sometimes you have a three-page audition, and you probably have three different auditions that day, and you can't memorize everything, and that's okay. If you're understanding the material and you feel like, and I feel like they're in the room with me and they are present with this character, then I'm in. They may not get the part, but I'm in. It's the ones who don't make choices, who feel like they're there because this is one of many stops they have that day. Um, and, or the ones, you know, you don't want to, you, audition time is precious. Do not overstay your welcome. There's usually like five seconds of awkwardness when you walk in and and then it's get to work, and then you maybe you'll get notes to do another one, or you may not, and, and you leave. You don't want to in any way be remembered for anything other than, wow, she was really good. And just to add on to that, you know, um, two quick things. I can't tell you how many times, like, you know, in my experience with casting, like casting my pilot last year, oftentimes a great actor would come in and they would, you know, read their sides, and they could be incredibly prepared, and they could be an incredibly talented, gifted actor. But if they didn't fit the role that we're imagining, it doesn't matter. And so in terms of what Michael was just saying about not letting it damage you, because these are such difficult, emotionally draining exercises, you have to remember that oftentimes you're simply not going to fit the uh, you know, expectation that the writer has in his or her head for that role. Um, and then the other thing which I found to be you know, incredibly instructive um, is that oftentimes when someone did do a really good job, even if they weren't necessarily how we imagined the character, 
we had a director in the room with us and he would give notes. And if the actor was then actually listening to the director and actually then able to do the scene again and incorporate the notes, it, was, it made a giant difference. And more often than not, that actor would be asked to come back for another shot. So yeah, being yeah. sort of present in the moment and being able to take in notes is just incredibly important. And, and off of something Aaron just said, there, in Instinct, there was a part in the book that was a, it was described as a uh, tall, bald, black British man. And so we saw probably the 12 best tall, bald, black British actors. Um, and each one was spectacular. Like, there was no way, you know, some were taller, some were broader, some, but they were great. And then at the end of the day, um, there was someone on the the list of actors who were coming in um, and I didn't recognize his name and he wasn't going to audition. It was just a meeting. Um, and so I, I, you just always get a little annoyed by that. Um, but so the door opens and this guy walks in and um, I recognized him. He was in Lost and um, he is uh, of Indian descent, uh, grew up in England, um, not tall, not bald, not black. <laughs> Um, and was wearing like a leather duster and probably five foot six. And he just had trouble written all over him. <laughs> and before he got to the chair, I knew this guy was nothing like what the part I imagined. And I knew that was done, that that's the guy. And he was a smart enough actor to know that also. So sometimes those meetings last a half hour. 10 minutes in, he stood up, he was like, so nice to meet you, and left. And, you know, he knew not to overstay his welcome. And also, we'd seen, you know, 12 amazing actors for a part. Um, and then someone came in completely different from that part. And, and I didn't know what that part was till I saw him. And then I was like, oh, that's who it is. That's the guy. And so those things happened, too, both for the good and the bad. You know, 12 great actors didn't get a part. Um, and this guy did. Right, and then, like I was saying, that was even before he opened his mouth. So a lot of times it's just the luck of your profile of, you know, compared to what the writer is thinking. Um, the two other things I'd say just to the actors here, uh, in terms of notes, one of the reasons why it's really important is because when you cast an actor in a pilot, you're also casting them for seven years of a show. They, you know, when, when actors sign pilot deals, they sign a contract for seven years. So if they're agile enough to take notes in the audition, they're agile enough to take notes on set. If they can't understand a simple note in an audition, it's not a good sign. Do you think there's anyone in this room that could repeat your question? <laughs> um, let me do my best. Should you go to film school? Um, I find that to be an incredibly subjective question. I remember, um, I think when I, so I, I was going to the USC writing program and um, at the last minute decided I wanted to do more than write, and I didn't want to be in California. So I applied to Columbia University and their film program, which was uh, more comprehensive. You did everything. It was, it was also much more of a European-based curriculum than USC, which is much more Hollywood-based. Um, and I remember, like, I think the first week that Film School started, Steven Soderbergh um, came out and said, uh, if anyone's a real filmmaker, they don't go to film school. They just take that money and make a film. And thinking, oh, what have I done? Um, so, but the point of the story, I think, is that for him, that's probably true. For me, that wouldn't have been true. I found film school incredibly helpful. Um, I learned, you know, you had to take an acting class. 
So I'm a horrible actor, but it taught me how difficult acting is. It taught me how to approach words from an actor's point of view, and it taught me how to communicate with actors. As a showrunner and as a director, that's invaluable. Um, taking directing, you know, directing is the hardest thing. You can act with friends for free and you can write for free. It's really hard to direct for free because you need a camera, you, you know, you need to do things, you need to edit. So to have the opportunity to make movies, um, whether they're 30 second movies or a thesis film for 15 minutes, um, it's very hard to get that experience anywhere else. And also to watch, you know, I, one of my jobs there was I operated a 35 millimeter projector. So I would be in a projection booth watching the movies I was projecting and, and learning about them and studying movies. And, and so again, you know, when I ask about Paul Newman or The Verdict, if you went to film school, you would have seen The Verdict. Um, if you don't go to film school, you might not. That doesn't mean you're going to be a better or worse writer. But to me, it's very important to learn where you came from. And if you're going into a business, you want to know the history of that business because that's what built to where it is now. So to ignore that or to not understand it and not enrich your craft with it, I, I think is wasteful. So uh, it really depends on who you are and how much you want to learn. And I don't think it's going to make a difference in terms of getting a job. You know, no one's going to say you went to film school, I'll hire you. Um, it might make you better at what you're doing. You definitely meet people there. I mean, I went to film school with people who have, you know, been very successful in the film industry, and I know them, and we're friends because we went through that together. Um, so there's not a right answer, unfortunately, but I loved film school because you are going to school and talking about movies and learning about movies and making movies, and that's it. And I can't imagine anything more fun to do. How'd you break um, into the industry? That's a great question. He's got an incredible story, which... Um, the, my first job in the industry was at Columbia with something called a script bank, which meant that every, any student who wanted to put a log line of any script they've written in a document, they could submit it. And the school then sent that out to every single uh, production company studio out there. And so I was taking a thriller course. Um, and I'm not a thriller writer, but it was a great teacher, the guy who wrote the movie The Warriors, if any of you have seen that kind of cult movie. Um, and, uh, and so I put my logline in, and three months later, I got a call, and they said, um, we really like your logline, we want to read the script. So I, of course, you know, this never happens, I was thrilled, so I sent them the script, and maybe three months later, I got a call on like a Tuesday saying, we love the script, um, we want to buy it, um, hang tight. And, and it was like, okay, um, and we're going to call you Friday. So uh, they never called. Um, and then two months later, another call, like on a Wednesday. We really want to buy it this time, but we have to close the deal by Friday. Um, so by this point, I was ready. I like, knew who to reach out to. And sure enough, they bought the script um, that Friday. And, uh, and there was two companies. There was a Canadian company. They had just bought an American company, and they hadn't merged yet. So I'd get notes from the American company. I'd get paid to do a rewrite. And then I'd get notes from the Canadian company that conflicted with the American company notes. I'd get paid to do that rewrite. So they were giving me opposite notes, and I kept getting paid to do it. And at a certain <laughs> point, someone caught on and fired me. Um, <laughs> but uh, the movie got made, and uh, it's, it, it didn't get a theatrical release, but it's an incredibly cheesy thriller. Um, and, 
and I had no part in being on the set, but it's my script and it's my name. And then um, I sent that script to someone's agent at William Morris, um, at the time, just William Morris, and she said to me in an email, um, I hate the script, um, but I love the writing. Um, next, you know, write something personal and send that to me. So I totally got the message, and I wrote a romantic comedy, and I sent it to her, and, um, and she signed me off of that. And we were trying to set it up, and after maybe two or three trips out to L.A., um, talking about actors, I realized this movie was never going to get made. And so, again, getting back to your question, based on my film school history and what I learned there, I realized the only way I'm going to do this is to do it myself. So I'm going to write a movie that I can direct and raise the money for and get it made. And so I did. I wrote a movie that took place in one night in one location, and um, we made it for $700,000, and Miramax bought it. Um, and, uh, and the producers of the movie were doing a TV show at the time, and I had no interest in television at all. And they said, let's pitch it as a TV show. And I said, sure, and didn't know what that meant. So we went to L.A. and pitched it to Fox, the guy who now runs Showtime, um, David Nevins, and pitched it as a half hour. And in the middle of the pitch, he stopped and said, can you make it an hour long? And I didn't know what that meant. Um, <laughs> so I said, sure, would love to. And they bought it, and then I wrote and directed that pilot, and that pilot got picked up to series. And on the same day that pilot got picked up, uh, a friend of ours, Ben Shankman, who's an actor, uh, debuted in this play on Broadway. And so I went to his cast party afterwards and got hammered with him and <laughs> everyone from the play and got a call from the head of Fox saying they unpicked up my show. <laughs> um, so I kind of very slowly walked backwards out of the bar, not to ruin everyone's night, and went home and wept. <laughs> um, and, but what happened is the show that actually knocked my show out, those people then made a deal with me, and that kind of is how I fell into TV. Um, so that, was my, that first paying job was the script that I wrote in a thriller class at film school in a genre that I love to watch, but I can't write um, for my life. And so that, that is how it happened. Yeah. Amazing. So I know you guys have a bunch more questions. I'm really sorry. Pizza is here. Um, so thank you, Michael. Thank you.